It's been said that music hath charms to soothe the savage breast. But we should ask ourselves, can this influence be used to move hearts in the opposite direction? Can music stir up savagery in the way people think and act? Hello, I'm Eric Holmberg, and in this episode of War of the Worldviews, we're going to take a look at how some modern popular music and the cultural feedback loop in which it exists are, in effect, little more than the sounds of war, the cry of a rebellious and spiritually blind generation seeking to overthrow the rule of God and His truth and damning themselves in the process. We're going to be using a few clips taken from Hell's Bells 2, The Power and Spirit of Popular Music, an eight-part documentary series we produced a few years ago. If you or a loved one needs a better understanding of this important subject, I would encourage you to get a copy. We begin by looking more closely at the poet's observation about music's power. Can it charm the human heart? TJ. TJ. Son. Get it. What are you doing? I'm just doing some programming. Programming what, the computer or your brain? What's that? I've already drawn the analogy between food and entertainment, how what we bring into our bodies and minds affects the type of people we become. Perhaps an even better analogy, though, can be found here, and of all things, a broken window. In his classic work, Thinking About Crime, renowned social scientist James Q. Wilson observed that disorder and crime are usually inextricably linked that human behavior is profoundly affected by its environment. Broken windows, graffiti, drunkenness, and open displays of unfettered sexuality are an invitation for crime, a declaration that the environment is uncontrolled and uncontrollable, and that anyone can invade it to do whatever damage and mischief the mind suggests. Almost like clockwork, when this broken window effect is reversed and these elements are removed or suppressed within a community, crime rates plummet. An ordered and more dignified atmosphere encourages civility and moral behavior, while disorder breeds anarchy and immorality. Hi, how you doing? And if that's true when disorder appears in something as mundane as a broken window, how much more powerful is the catalyst for immoral behavior when the aural environment, when the music, that language of the human soul, is bent towards moral disorder and chaos? A striking example of this broken window effect as it relates to music can be seen in this small park in Edmonton, Alberta. Several years ago, drug dealers began doing business here, and as a result, the crime rate in general began to increase. In an effort to restore a sense of order and preserve their community, local merchants paid for a sound system and began to broadcast the symphonies of Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart throughout the park. Neil DeBoard, the local chief of police, reported that the results were immediate and dramatic, with the number of crimes falling by approximately 800%. While there's no way to fully quantify all the factors that led to this decline, the gut consensus was that the beauty, intelligence, 
grandeur and order projected by the classical music was so antithetical to the discord and degeneracy associated with the drug trade that many of the dealers just stayed away. A more recent example of the flip side to this principle can be seen in the rioting, theft, arson, and rape that took place at Woodstock 1999. During the Limp Biscuit set, where the majority of the sexual assaults were reported, vocalist Fred Durst introduced a new song. How many people here ever woke up one morning and just decided it was one of those days and you're going to break some sh then sang This chaos reached its crescendo the next night during the Red Hot Chili Peppers performance while bass player Flea pranced about naked and lead singer Anthony Kiedis urged women in the audience to do something so disturbing we can't even mention it here an organization calling itself PAX, Latin for Peace, distributed candles. So here, why don't you just take one as a souvenir for coming by? It was no small irony when these so-called peace candles were used to set fires that ultimately burned down a stage, 12 trailers, and brought 500 riot police onto the scene. When asked by reporters about the pandemonium, Concert promoter John Schur replied, I can't give you an explanation. I guess they were kids blowing off some steam and it got out of hand. It's been well said, there are none so blind as those who refuse to see. Again, as with the young criminals we looked at earlier, we're not suggesting that the music and the atmosphere shaped by it were the sole cause of all the mayhem. The heat, high prices, and poor planning have all been trotted out as contributing factors. But to say that the moral anarchy intentionally promoted by this music was not a, if not the major factor, is to not only deny common sense and the broken window effect, it's to ignore a very basic aspect of human nature. If we stop to honestly think about it, we all know we have a bent towards doing the wrong things. Little children, for example, don't have to be taught how to be bad how to be selfish or fight or get angry when they don't get their way. Parents have to work hard at teaching kids how to be good, how to develop the self-discipline necessary to not succumb to these very natural tendencies. And even as we grow older, again, if we're honest, we struggle. It's all too easy for us to become impatient or even angry over things as inconsequential as the flow of traffic. We're tempted to goof off at work even though we know we'd be upset if someone did the same thing to us. We're tempted to get angry and rebel against the very people who love us the most. We struggle with sexual and emotional faithfulness, even though we know it's what we desire and expect in return. On and on it goes, confirming what the Bible clearly declares. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
like it or not, compared to the perfections of an infinite and infallible God, our fallen, fallible, and finite natures produce actions that even at their best are as filthy rags in His sight. Our bent towards evil is really more an addiction, one for which we ultimately need His power, His grace to fight and overcome. So what happens when we immerse ourselves into an environment that encourages us to give in to these temptations? When we listen to and watch things, for example, that glorify sex, anger, and rebellion, suddenly it's not just the fires or the rapes or the looting that took place at Woodstock that begin to make sense. It's the stuff that goes on every day and all around us. The dumbing down and coarsening of language. Okay, well I can say said it 20 times already. The increasing popularity of tattooing, body modification, and body piercing. The erosion of any and all standards of modesty. The loss of a sense of destiny, purpose, and hope. The use of alcohol and drugs. I'm taking a hit for everyone here. The celebration of rebellion, chaos, and anarchy. The assault on religion and moral absolutes. The growing fascination with death and the occult. The embrace of anger, aggression, and the celebration of violence. The increasing normalization of sexual debauchery. The list drags on. The sonic environment created by many of today's artists, both at Woodstock and more importantly, throughout our culture is encouraging behavior that in any other time and in any other context would be almost unthinkable. Right, we got one rule. There are no rules. Have a good time. The prophetic warning of Galatians 6 has come true with a vengeance. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh shall from his flesh reap corruption. Well, you got one religion that worships this God, other religions that worship multiple gods. You got some religions that actually think that the entire cosmos is the eternal one, but in the end, it's all just differences in culture, language, quantum perspectives. I mean, whatever. But in the end, it's all you're all looking at the same thing, just a different angle. To say that all religions are the same thing is to confuse asking a question with giving an answer to the question. Uh, just the fact that all religions 
answer the same kind of questions doesn't mean that the answers they give are all the same. Now, uh, all religions do contain some element of truth to it. We have to acknowledge this. In fact, in Romans 1, Paul tells us that uh, all men know the truth and that it's been what we can know about God has been clearly given to us and that we're responsible for that. But unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so the, uh, where, where we see religions proclaim the truth, such in, thing, in things like uh, moral and ethical standards, um, we see uh, the, the truthfulness of that statement. And we see the, uh, we, that's borne out in the fact that moral and ethical standards are, are very similar from religion to religion. And, and that would explain such a thing. But they all attribute it to different sources and worship different gods. Um, and that is the suppression of truth that we see. So we do see this, this, this push and pull there that's talked about in Romans 1. Um, but probably the best way to demonstrate that religions disagree on fundamentally um, important things is in the question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Um, they, they, all the different religions are going to answer it in different ways. Uh, in, in one religion, he's, uh, is Jesus a part of the pantheon of gods? Is he a spirit guide? Is he like a bodhisattva or something? Uh, is he a great teacher? Uh, is he just an itinerant, uh, crazy uh, pastor that, that got into trouble? Uh, or is he the Son of God incarnate who died for your sins and is reconciling you to a holy, righteous, and just God? Those, are, those kinds of answers uh, are mutually exclusive. They cannot be uh, reconciled with each other uh, in, in any coherent way. And so that reveals that all religions ultimately are fundamentally different. All ideas have consequences but there are few more compelling than those born on the wings of art. We've seen just how powerful those consequences can be relative to music's influence. Now let's turn to the source of inspiration or inspiritation of much modern art and thought and see if we can better understand what's really going on behind the curtain of casual appearances. structures of Western society. But if we are going to break set and blow through the check valve of 2,000 years of Christian brainwashing, we need to pay more attention to guides and talismans developed by ancient pre-Christian religions. For example, this symbol was used by shamans going all the way back to 
the Aztecs and beyond. It's particularly incredible when you consider how closely it resembles the, the, the DNA, DNA helix, which provides powerful support for McKenna's theories about tertiary alkaloids like psilocybin, or if you like, magic mushrooms, <laughs> providing the spark that fueled the sudden evolution of human consciousness. Now, your reading assignment for the rest of the semester, which I would highly recommend anyway, is generally considered to be the definitive work on the whole topic of using hallucinogens to reprogram the biocomputer that is Hey, Jeremy, man. Is this the book you've been talking about, bro? Or what? That book rocks. Dude, that will blow your mind. About my second time through it, I got this idea for a new song, kind of like a journey to the center of your mind type of trip. And I was thinking we could take some quotes from Lyrius' translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Here's what I got so far. Like the proverbial frog in the pot, happy to stay put as long as the heat is turned up slowly, Western culture, as in the parable we just saw, has become increasingly steeped in a virtual witch's cauldron of occult thought and practice. What began as an excursion into paganism on the part of a handful of philosophers, artists, educators, and other so-called free thinkers has now become part of the very fabric of Western culture. From sex magic to tattooing, New Age religion to open Satan worship, occult practices that have been progressively eradicated by the advancing influence of the Christian gospel over nearly two millennia, are now back with a vengeance. And it's here where our story becomes very interesting because, as you're about to see, art in general and music most specifically became a primary channel for an occult revival. To understand at least the outline of the big picture here, we're going to begin with a quick history lesson. If you're not interested in these types of more academic pursuits, feel free to skip ahead a few minutes to the end of the primer. The big picture starts several hundred years ago. Beginning roughly in the 15th century, Western civilization began to experience some profound changes brought about by the confluence of a few key cultural trends and events. First, there was the Renaissance, the great age of discovery and exploration. Modern science, which as most objective historians and scientists will attest, was born out of the Christian worldview, began to experience a quantum leap in growth. Discoveries in astronomy, physics, and mathematics in particular, began to hold forth the promise that man could, as Kepler said, think God's thoughts after him and truly begin to plumb the mysteries of creation. Simultaneously, the voyages of the great explorers circumscribed the planet, dramatically expanding man's horizons and opportunities. 
During this same period, the printing press was invented, and suddenly there was an efficient means by which this new knowledge could be recorded and circulated. The next key movement began in 1517 when a German monk by the name of Martin Luther challenged the institutional church and launched the Reformation. Suddenly, the church, which heretofore had in many ways dominated European life and thought, was now seen as distinctly human, flawed, and as a result, open to being questioned. Increasingly, scientists and philosophers while for the most part still holding to a belief in God, began to pursue knowledge with a diminishing regard for the frame of reference of, first, the church, and then, finally, God and His Word. By the 17th and 18th centuries, these movements culminated in what is commonly termed the Age of Reason and the Enlightenment. While Christian thought continued to exert great influence, particularly in England and America, more and more, the architects of Western culture viewed the God hypothesis as increasingly irrelevant. Human reason was king, and by the middle of the 19th century, most notably with the publication of Darwin's Origin of the Species, the modern era was in full bloom. As Enlightenment principles took hold, however, a number of problems began to emerge. And suddenly, rationalism didn't seem to be the savior so many hoped it would be. First, as the Cartesian foundation for knowledge supplanted the classical Christian formulation, philosophers and scientists began to run up against the limits inherent in independent human thought. Slowly, the great hope of the French encyclopedists and others that man's reason alone could penetrate the mysteries of life began to crumble. By the middle of the 20th century, the twin discoveries of relativity and quantum theory nailed the coffin of classical materialism shut. Another serious setback occurred when the French Revolution, in many instances a well-intentioned experiment in Enlightenment humanism, went horribly awry. With the guillotine and the reign of terror, naked human reason was seen to be capable of the worst sort of atrocities. And again, the 20th century, most notably through its various communist revolutions, has only driven this point further into the ground. And finally, as far as this summary is concerned, there was the irrepressibility of the human spirit. Despite materialism's cold insistence that all that existed was matter and its motion, man's innate thirst for meaning, redemption, and transcendence simply refused to go away. And the scriptures tell us why, for he has put eternity in their hearts. This God-shaped vacuum, as the famed philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal called it, goes to the very core of man's existence and cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. But. As we've just seen, this Christian solution was no longer acceptable to the supposedly enlightened architects of this modern era. New solutions had to be found as everything from primitive naturalism, radical individualism, intense subjective experience, a classless society, psychoanalysis, and the alchemy of the subconscious mind 
and altered states of consciousness were trotted out by the intelligentsia to fill the vacuum left by their rejection of God. Ironically, by the latter half of the 19th century, the great revolt against the Christian worldview, an incremental revolution that was supposedly sparked and sustained by man's bold quest for rational knowledge, had become progressively irrational, and everything that has followed in its wake has only served to confirm Chesterton's famous observation. The first effect of not believing in God is to believe in anything. Among the anythings that people began to believe are a number of irrational ideas that are still very much with us today. Belief number one, all religions are equally valid. With the foundations of Christendom being set aside, people ran everywhere in search of answers to the mysteries that science had either refused to acknowledge or failed to penetrate. European colonization in India, China, and Africa in particular sparked a major revival of Eastern and occult religions in the West. Belief number two, a corollary of number one. Primitive cultures, because they are closer to man's natural, uncivilized state, contain truth the Christian West has lost or suppressed. This idea was popularized first by Rousseau and then later by the writers and artists of the Romantic school. The influential German philosopher and key initiator of the God is Dead movement, Friedrich Nietzsche, pushed the envelope even further by calling for a literal reversal of Christian values, substituting instead the will to power and a more primal, what he termed Dionysian approach to everything from philosophy to sexual ethics. And it's also quite significant that Nietzsche and other metaphysicians saw music as a primary carrier of this new ethos. In response to these potent ideas, all manner of occult thought and practice began to spread throughout Europe and eventually America. Seances and spiritualist societies became increasingly popular. Foreign service personnel, enamored with the sex cults of Hinduism, wrote tracks introducing these arcane practices to a wider audience looking not only for mystery and meaning, but new ways of gratifying their flesh. Theosophists and the Illuminati spread the gospel of occult enlightenment, making particular inroads in academia and secret societies like the Masons. New drugs were introduced along with the occult notion that they could be used to spark the fire of psychic enlightenment. In England, Yeats took mescaline and joined the Golden Dawn. Shelley practiced ritual occultism, free love and satanic blasphemy, dying young and leaving behind the troubled founder of modern horror. The Hashish Club in Paris was frequented by Baudelaire, Dumas, Flaubert, Rambeau and others. Their school of Romanticism perfected the now common practice of divorcing art from morality, producing art for its own sake, while celebrating Dionysian madness, triggered often by alcohol and drugs as a key to literal inspiration. 
gurus, prophets, ascended masters, shamans, witches, mahatmas, alchemists, and new age messiahs flourished, and the river of occult thought became progressively mainstream. And nowhere was this stream more powerful, wider, flowing into more lives than when it coursed through the channel of art and its most potent form, a new style of music that came out of Africa via the Caribbean and the port city of New Orleans. A music whose rhythm patterns serve as conduits for spiritual energies, linking individual human consciousness with the gods. And as we'll see, these spiritual energies help fashion a new world and a new type of worshiper remade in the image of these gods. Well, having outlined the historical backdrop, let's now connect the dots using a few brief examples that closely follow the pattern we outline in the dramatic piece that opened this section. The story is a broad one, with a million subtexts and minor characters. But we can grasp the essential plot, and I mean that in every sense of the word, by focusing on a few main players and events. We'll begin with the religion and ritual music of what we'll call shamanism, although it has dozens of different names and permutations based upon culture, continent, and ethnicity. As a musical form, it's identified not so much by its primary emphasis on rhythm as by the use of these rhythms, coupled with repetition and the relative simplicity of the music to induce a form of trance state. Shamanistic music, in turn, purposely uses these states of altered consciousness, often enhanced by the use of drugs, to dissolve inhibitions and tap into primal energies, heightened sensuality, boldness, resistance to physical and psychic pain, and contact with spirits are among the intended byproducts of the performance. Well, using our analogy, any number of modern intellectuals became interested in shamanistic cultures, thinking that they perhaps held a key to enlightenment and human evolution. Aldous Huxley, for example, the renowned British writer and intellectual, explored mystical experiences far and wide, finally experimenting with psychotropic drugs and advocating their use as a tool of enlightenment. His 1954 work, The Doors of Perception, titled from a line by William Blake's Gnostic treatise, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, became a classic of psychedelic literature. A decade later, the book, as well as Blake's writings, became the inspiration for both the name and the spirit behind one of the most influential bands in rock, The Doors. Keyboardist Ray Manzarek explained, at the time, we had been ingesting a lot of psychedelic chemicals, so the doors of perception were cleansed in our own minds. And we saw the music as a vehicle to, in a sense, become proselytizers of a new religion, a religion of self, of each man as God. That was the original idea behind the doors. And the form of music played by the doors? 
well, you can call it rock and roll, but Morrison and the rest of the band understood its primal source, what it would have been called in another time and in another context. I read a little bit about shamanism, you know, what we see uh, with the music and that kind of thing. The shaman, in defining his role in, in society, he's just more interested in um, uh, pursuing his own fantasies. Let's reinvent the gods, all the myths of the ages. Celebrate symbols from deep elder forests. We need great golden copulations. Where did the God of the Bible fit in Morrison's new theology? Petition the Lord with prayer. After deconstructing both Christianity and Western culture, he wonders what should take its place. And what was that new something? Reinvented gods, the ancient ones, the shaman, the wild child, disorder and chaos, a snake who's old and whose skin is cold. Manzarek described the transformation of Morrison, the Lizard King, as these spirit guides came over him in concert. It was a psychological horror freak show in the sense of the shaman, the sense of possession. Morrison was the shaman who took people on a mystical journey to a darker psychic realm. And guitarist Robbie Krieger added his perspective. We were revivalists, he said, as well as musicians and wanted our audience to undergo a religious experience. Well, Millions of fans underwent this religious experience, following the doors and dozens of other psychedelic bands into the mystical new age envisioned earlier by Huxley. The reason for the doors, the raison d'etre for the doors, was making music to plug yourself into the vibrations of the planet harmonize your inner vibration with the vibration of the audience, the human beings vibrating in harmony together. It it's, it, it's like a pagan, it's like some sort of a mystical Christ. The, uh, uh, the release of uh, Kundalini, the Kundalini power expanding in your body and curling and coiling upwards. Uh, the Aquarian age in which we'll finally begin to merge all the religions and sciences and arts and whatnot and we'll all realize that we are gods. Jim Morrison was a god to himself. I'm a god unto myself. We are all gods unto ourselves. So to put it outside of yourself is a seeking, uh, is, is, is a false messiah. That's a messianic. That's the, the end of 2,000 years of the culture, and the religion that we're involved in now. The LSD trip. I salute the God with a, as a religious pilgrimage. The LSD kick. I salute the goddess within is a religious ecstasy. Following a very similar tact was the grand old man of the psychedelic 60s, Timothy Leary. Psychologist, Harvard professor, 
and consummate free thinker, Leary coined what may have been the essential mantra of the rock and roll revolution. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. We're turned on, and we're tuned in, and we're very dropped out. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. What I'm saying happens to be the oldest method of human wisdom. Look within, find your own divinity, detach yourself from social and material struggle. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. In what may be one of the most telling private conversations in modern history, Leary recalled the first time he took psilocybin with Aldous Huxley. Huxley's eyes were closed, he said. Suddenly he clapped his hands. Your role is quite simple, Huxley told Leary. Become a cheerleader for evolution. That's what I did and my grandfather before me. These brain drugs will bring about vast changes in society. We must spread the word. Huxley then continued with a chilling addendum. The obstacle to this evolution, Timothy, is the Bible. Leary, like Huxley, spent his life as a cheerleader for evolution, tearing down the foundations of Christendom and erecting in its place a syncretistic blend of Eastern religion, shamanism, and a do-it-yourself drug-fueled enlightenment. cellular heaven within, hallowed be thy name, from whose loins we have sprung. And a primary tool for advancing this new age gospel? You got it, rock and roll. Speaking of the psychedelic bands that dotted the 60s landscape, groups that increasingly embraced his occult views, Leary declared, I rejoice to see our culture being taken over by joyful young messiahs who dispel our fears and charm us back into the pagan dance of harmony. In an essay Leary wrote at the time, he actually spoke of God becoming incarnate in a particular band. He or she, he said, has come back as the four-sided Mandela, the Beatles, the means by which to spread the new gospel, music, the sacrament, drugs. And in what became the virtual model for our opening vignette, John Lennon became so enamored with Leary's thought and practice, he used his translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead in the lyrics for the 1966 release, Tomorrow Never Knows. Observing the impact of both this song and, a year later, the groundbreaking Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, Leary once again extolled the power of music to affect social change by sparking a form of religious awakening. First, Leary said, you started with rock and roll, and then you add psychedelic drugs. Millions of kids turned on pharmacologically listening to stoned-out electronic music designed specifically for the suggestible, psychedelicized nervous system by stoned-out, long-haired minstrels. This combination of electrical-pharmacological expansion is the most powerful brainwashing device our planet has ever known, an instrument for evangelic education. 
propaganda that few people over the age of 30 can comprehend. They're laying down a new revelation, the journey to the East. And the East is precisely where the brainwashed multitudes found themselves. The Beatles, the Stones, and the Beach Boys, among many other rock stars, followed the same trajectory described by George Harrison. When I was younger, with the after effects of the LSD that opened something up inside me in 1966, a flood of other thoughts came into my head which led me to the yogis. Having embraced Krishna consciousness, Harrison purposely used his music, as Leary described it, for evangelic education. In a 1982 interview with the ex-Beatle, Vedic scholar Mukanda Goswami observed, I don't think it's possible to calculate just how many people were turned on to Krishna consciousness by your song, My Sweet Lord. And Harrison replied, My idea in My Sweet Lord, because it sounded like a pop song, was to sneak up on them a bit. The point was to have people not offended by Hallelujah. And by the time it gets to Hare Krishna, they're already hooked, and their foot's tapping, and they're already singing along, to lull them into a sense of false security. And, as in our opening piece, multitudes of fans were and are, quote, snuck up on, not just by this song, but through an avalanche of artists and anthems extolling the virtues of everything from reefer to reincarnation, new age spirituality to hardcore Satanism. And while few are led into full-blown devotion, many of the distinctives of occult thought have gained more than a foothold in the thinking of most Westerners. Among them, the denial of either Christ's divinity or his uniqueness, the mockery or trivialization of Christian faith and symbols, the embrace of pagan practices like ritual cutting, piercing, and tattooing, as well as the use of drugs, trance states, and occult customs and iconography. And, perhaps most significantly, the proliferation of the distinctly Eastern and occult notion that God is an impersonal force that lives in everything and everyone so that values and morality are relative to the individual and therefore with no absolute standard of righteousness there can be no ultimate judgment no heaven or hell Imagine there's no heaven John Lennon's most famous song is among the few truly universal and instantly recognizable anthems that rock has produced. John Lennon recorded Imagine on a Thursday. The only song that has been broadcast to most of the world via the United Nations and in perhaps the most surreal performance of all, 
the closing ceremony of the 1996 Summer Olympics. Not only is the song fundamentally communistic, not only does it hold forth the unattainable and ultimately occult notion of a man-made utopia, but by denying the existence of heaven, hell, and finally even God, Lenin, and apparently much of the world, seeks to deny the one thing that holds tyrants in check and that guarantees individual human freedom and dignity. What Lenin has, quote, imagined would be nothing less than hell on earth. We could spend days examining the vast panorama of occult thought and practice that has been mainstreamed through the contemporary music culture. But let's continue notes from the underground by taking just a few snapshots of some of the more crucial collusions between rock and the satanic. We'll see that David Bowie was more right than probably he ever imagined when he stated, Rock has always been the devil's music. I believe that it's dangerous. It could well bring about a very evil feeling in the West, a dark era. I feel that we're only heralding something even darker than ourselves. It's been well said that a person is known by the company he or she keeps. Well, in the world of rock and roll, there's one guy who pops up so often, you'd think he'd invented the backbeat. The Beatles featured him, along with Aldous Huxley and four Hindu masters, on the cover of their Sgt. Pepper's album. The photo montage was made up of what they called people we like and admire and our heroes. Their choice was a significant one. Aleister Crowley is generally considered to be the most important and influential occultist of the 20th century. Clever, well-educated, and a prolific writer, Crowley was a walking encyclopedia of occult thought and practice. Dubbed the wickedest man in the world by the British press, Crowley preferred his own pseudonym, The Great Beast 666. In August of 1914, the World Magazine published an account of some of the semi-public ceremonies Crowley held in London. Journalist Harry Kemp attended one such ritual and noted, then came the slow, monotonous chant of the high priest. There is no good, evil is good, all hail, prince of the world, to whom even God himself has given dominion. Kemp continued, sounding for all the world, like he was describing any number of contemporary rock concerts. Men and women danced about, leaping and swaying to the whining of infernal and discordant music. They sang obscene words. Women tore their bodices, some partially disrobed. One fair worshiper, seizing upon the high priest's dagger, wounded herself in the breasts. At this, all seemed to go madder than ever. Such was Crowley's ministry at the age of 39. By the time he died 33 years later, fearful, sobbing, and with the last words, I am perplexed, 
upon his lips, his dark legacy had reached sufficient critical mass to almost single-handedly, in the words of occult writer Robert Anton Wilson, spark a worldwide revival of paganism. Well, in 1918, Crowley uh, took a great magical oath, which was a serious thing for Crowley. And he took an oath that he would surrender all of his magical powers that he had achieved until that date to concentrate his energy single-pointedly on the one task of uh, destroying Christianity and uh, reviving uh, paganism. And I think if you look around the world, it's pretty obvious that Crowley has been uh, a remarkable success. The paganism has made a big comeback in an organized way neo-pagan groups and in an unorganized way our whole society has become more pagan. I'll tell you, when I was a kid I read Robert Anton Wilson and all this shit, and here we are, we're standing here, we're talking about this shit, and it's real. If you do these things that you're told by Alistair Crowley, if you actually do what they say, things happen. Things occur exactly as it's described, and we can all do it. In 1971, Timothy Leary had an epiphany during a tarot reading that utilized a set of cards designed by Crowley. His revelation? That he was Crowley reborn and was to complete the work Crowley began, preparing humanity for cosmic consciousness. Leary acknowledged this powerful connection with the great beast in a letter to Wilson, observing that the coincidences, synchronicities between my life and his are embarrassing. From this connection flowed frequent references to Crowley, his philosophy, and their common destinies in Leary's writings and speech. Well, I've been an admirer of Aleister Crowley. I think that uh, I'm carrying on much of the work that uh, he started uh, over 100 years ago, and I think the 60s themselves. You know, Crowley said, uh, um, he was in favor of, uh, of uh, finding your own self and, and uh, uh, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law under love. It was a very powerful statement. I'm sorry he isn't around now to appreciate the glories that he started. The phrase, do what thou wilt, was taken from the Book of the Law, Crowley's most renowned work and one whose composition is worth understanding in the context of our study. While visiting Egypt in 1904, Crowley's first wife, Rose, began going into spontaneous trances, muttering things like, they are waiting for you, and he who was waiting was Horus. Intrigued, Crowley and Rose went to visit the Cairo Museum. From a distance, she spied a glass case and exclaimed, there, there he is. Upon inspection, the case did contain an image of Horus painted on a wooden stele, but what particularly stunned Crowley was its exhibit number, 666, his number, the number of the beast. Convinced now that something supernatural was happening, Crowley went back to his hotel and performed a ritual, summoning this higher power. That clip was taken from part four of Hell's Bells 2, 
the power and spirit of popular music from a chapter entitled Notes from the Underground, the Occult History of Rock. Altogether, there are eight sections in this four-hour documentary series covering everything from the foundations of cultural analysis, sound and fury on the power of music, heartbeats, music's spiritual connection, Hearts of Darkness touching on rebellion, nihilism, and death, satanic sex and rock and roll, Antichrist superstars, rock's ultimate rebellion, and knocking on heaven's door, music and life at the crossroads. But let's now end on a note of light and hope by watching a clip from the last section, where we begin to move the viewer towards the ultimate and only solution for the sin this documentary exposes, Jesus the cross, and the empty tomb. Let's now close by examining the law from the Satanic Bible that best expresses the essence of this do-what-thou-wilt philosophy. Say unto thine own heart, I am mine own Redeemer. One of the essential facts of life is that we're all born with a sense that something is wrong or missing, and the rest of life becomes a quest for wholeness and fulfillment. In theological terms, redemption. Whatever we look to for this, be it God, family, friends, lovers, money, power, sex, drugs, music, fame, or anything else, that person or thing becomes our Redeemer, by definition, our God. Christianity simply declares that all of us have been ruined by sin and, as a result, are completely unable to save ourselves. We need a Messiah, a supernatural Redeemer. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Against this, every other religion, every philosophy and ethical system contrived by man says in one way or another, that we're not really that bad, and that through our own efforts, we can redeem ourselves. In this, they share the bottom line of Satanism and most of rock and roll.
And now, the ultimate dichotomy, the final fork in the road, presents itself. On the one hand stands the cross and the broken body of God the Son. And on the other, an idol, gilded by the craft of man. And just as in Moses' time, today the people riot and dance about their idol, and the music of their worship rises up to heaven as the sounds of war. Only those who are willingly blind can deny what this series has established, that at every point, with an almost mathematical precision, the culture of rock and roll seeks to subvert the rightful rule of God and put man, and sometimes even Satan, in his place. From its deep roots in the occult, to the vast profusion of evil fruit, the stain of sin, death, and judgment are unmistakable for those who have eyes to see. Know now that one day the music will stop. For those still worshiping around the golden calf, by God's grace, may that time be now. I hope you have, as they say, enjoyed the show. Please join us next week for another edition of War of the Worldviews. In the meantime, read Psalm 2 and ponder how this war is being waged and where it's ultimately headed. God has set His Son over all the kings of the earth, and His victory in this War of the Worldviews is assured.